1: Hilary Harper here, welcome. Yelling, bullying, put-downs. Popular culture makes working in a restaurant kitchen look like hell. Think of TV shows like The Bear and the public face of Gordon Ramsay. But it seems that systemic sexual harassment and abuse is also part of the job description for many hospitality workers in Australia. We'll hear what might change that culture soon on Life Matters, broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nation, and a little later, the effect that racialised assumptions can have have, and some practical ways to tackle prejudice wherever you find it. This is going to be a tough story for some around harassment and abuse, so take care with your listening. Roshani Ipa has been talking to people who were scarred by their treatment in restaurant kitchens for a feature in Gourmet Traveller magazine recently. It's a pretty shocking expose of the culture of misogyny and abuse affecting women mainly in the Australian hospitality industry. Roshani is the founder and editor of Culinary magazine, Emphasis on Colour, which amplifies the voices of First Nations, Black and people of colour in the food and restaurant industry. Roshani, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here. Besha Rodell is with us too, a former food writer for the LA Weekly and the New York Times. She's now back home in Melbourne as Chief Restaurant Critic with The Age. Besha, welcome to you. Thank you. Rishani, your article is a pretty awful read. I mean, it's it's pretty harrowing looking at the sexism and abuse in hospitality. Was this something that uh, you were prompted to investigate by a personal experience or just the kind of bulk of stories you were hearing?
2: Um, well, it was actually Joe, the editor of Gourmet Traveller, who approached me with this piece Um, and yeah it was something that was already obviously on my mind being a woman who has worked in hospitality before and works in food media Um, so yeah it's just it's an issue that is very prevalent still to this day Um, I've heard it's changing slowly which is Good to hear, but of course the the key term there is changing. It's still a work in progress. So, what were some of the common common stories that
1: cropped up again and again when you started looking into this?
2: Mm, um, I think with the chefs who like we'll be speaking to Shannon Martinez, of course, um, but the chefs that had started before you know a decade ago. Um, that it was a lot worse back then when they started as well, um, especially for, for chefs who were vulnerable, who are younger, apprentices. Um, yeah, that was a common thing, just hearing of the assaults um, or harassment and how it was just in the day-to-day kind of back of house. And then what's also the flip side is front of house, especially in this day and age, um, having female waitresses uh, being privy to you know, creepy, creepy actions from men, um, unfortunately. And yeah, that's, that's still going on.
1: Yeah, I certainly remember that from my pizza shop experience mm. in like the mid 90s. But yeah, I was hoping things had changed too. Mm. Roshani, what happens to people who complain about the abuse to management or, or even externally? Because as you've said, some of these abuses are really, really um, serious.
2: Yeah. Um. Unfortunately, sometimes it's not taken seriously. And I guess it comes down to who the manager is especially that's why I think it's great to to hear of these female led kitchens where there's a lot of empathy and action taken towards that um however that being said of course there can be empathetic male managers as well which is good um you know in the case of uh, Jackie Talanor unfortunately the experiences that she had where she was sexually assaulted in the kitchen by a senior male chef um at first it wasn't really she well she had a, a manager that tried to take it seriously um but unfortunately the board which was made of all males didn't take it seriously and just kind of dismissed her case at the time and that really stuck with her so yeah you you see some change and you see some people taking it seriously but it's not always the case unfortunately. Perhaps this is something you've
1: encountered if you've worked in hospitality and who hasn't frankly you've been hearing from Roshani Ipa who's the founder and editor of Culinary Magazine about an article she wrote delving into this for Gourmet Traveller Magazine. Besha Rodell's with us too, former food writer for the LA Weekly and the New York Times, now chief restaurant critic for with, with the age besha this is uh, something that you've written about in the past too what have you witnessed
3: well I came up in restaurants also I started working in restaurants about 20 years ago and I think that um, it used to just be a really male-dominated industry um, it was also an industry that was very welcoming to people who may not be easily hireable elsewhere so you could get a job in a kitchen if you had been in prison if you were recovering from drug addiction um, if and you in were that- Tattooed yeah, if you're your are heavily piecings. tattooed, exactly. So in that way, it was really welcoming to a section of the population that, you know, might not fit in in an office or didn't want to work in an office. And that high pressure environment Plus the background of a lot of people, plus the type of people who are attracted to that kind of uh, career, I think, made for this very pirate ship mentality. If you think about um, the kind of (laughs) texts that uh, are very important in the industry, you think about Anthony Bourdain, um, Marco Pierre White, uh, these kind of really kind of boy germ heavy um, books that are all about the the crew and getting through together Um, and so you know what comes with that a lot of time in terms of letting off steam is the kind of jibes that you would get on a pirate ship or in prison (laughs) you know Um, and those are often highly sexualized Um, and you know I found it interesting I've been been soul searching a lot about this over the years but um, you know I kind of loved that environment when I was working in kitchens. I found it funny and, um, you know, just that real sense of camaraderie that you had that we're getting through this very highly intense shift together. Um, and I could kind of roll with those punches. They didn't bother me that much. I was never assaulted. I will say that. But I definitely heard a lot of <laughs> inappropriate banter, banter that would be really inappropriate these days, especially. Um Thinking back on it for me, I realized that that kind of mind frame of saying, you know, I can be one of the guys, basically, is very hurtful <laughs> to people who can't do that. You shouldn't have to put up with that stuff. And um, especially young women coming into the industry, you know, trying to break in, maybe being the only woman in a kitchen who is younger, who who isn't comfortable with that, they would feel a huge amount of pressure to have to roll with it. And I think that those are the people who are the most vulnerable, um, uh, young women, queer people, people who just just a knot into that macho thing and you know now uh, 20 years later I can recognize that but at the time you know it was hard for me even as a woman to kind of step back and say what's wrong with this you know why is this so crappy for so many people because to me it was just you know fun and games so. well and you really evoked that culture where there's like a firm boundary between the in group and the out group but
1: Rishani, you've written too about the racialized and yeah. sexualized nature of some of this stuff where as Besha said people who who can't, you know, uh, flow through life, fitting in in that environment, uh, um, are targeted. What happens?
2: Yeah, um, I guess if we're looking at women of colour especially, there's obviously the fetishisation that goes along with that. Um, I mean, as a woman of colour myself, I know having been... Um, harassed sexually harassed when I was working in hospitality and I was a teenager I know how jarring that experience can be especially when you're still coming into your own body and you know especially when culture comes into it Um, it's it's a really jarring experience Um, yeah so
1: I'm just wondering how we got here how did this kind of boys club mentality become so sticky in hospitality Roshani is it has it always
2: been there I I think so kind of like what Bech has touched on as well, and, you know, looking even at the Escoffier system and how it's a brigade system. So it's um,
1: militaristic.
2: Exactly, yeah. And, and it really lacks a lot of what would traditionally be kind of feminine qualities or ideals. Um, and that's why feminine leadership or styles of feminine leadership that foster that open communication and that kind of thing, the transformational leadership. Um, there's benefits to that.
1: Transformational as opposed to transactional. Correct. I Googled that immediately after I read your article. And I was like, this is gonna ha- how I'm gonna do my parenting <laughs> from now on. But we're speaking with Rishani Ipa about the things that she's uncovered, very many experiences within Australian hospitality. And Besha Rodell about the the overview of that too. Besha's a food critic, now the chief restaurant critic with the age, and Rishani's the founder and and editor of Culinary Magazine. She wrote this article for Gourmet Travel. You can find it online. Love to hear your experiences and thoughts too. Our text number 0418 226576. Someone has uh, reliably texted in, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, which is the culture in a nutshell, really. Um, people are racialised, says Gwen in Noosa. Attitudes arising from racializing people are racist good uh, de- um, def- definitional point. Thank you, Gwen. If, uh, it's not only women that suffer sexual assault in mm. hospitality, and Roshani's nodding here, had a local man successfully sue a prominent businesswoman for an incident, says Keith. Very true Keith. Mm. Text message number 0418 We touched uh, just before, Roshani, on the idea of how women might do things differently. Shannon Martinez has joined us on the line. She's the owner of a restaurant in Melbourne called Smith and daughters, and she's executive chef there and other places. She began working in the industry at 15. Shannon, what kind of things happened to you in those early days?
0: Oh, right. so we're talking mid-90s here, and um, one of the probably most intense examples of such a male-heavy environment would definitely have been my first job at the Sofitel Hotel um, in the mid-90s, and I was in Banquet's Kitchen, so this was a brigade of about 40 chefs, Uh, and two of us were female I was at 15. So you can kind of imagine how intense that would have been as a first step into hospitality. Um, And just, I guess, this is where you start learning and thinking that the behaviours in a kitchen are normal and this is it, this is what our job is. And so I guess you go into this fight-or-flight mode um, where you either join and accept or... You leave, I guess, um,
1: so well, in the you know, mid nineties there there weren't as many jobs around as there are now, were there It was a pretty tight environment.
0: It was a tighter environment for sure, and also you know it's um and, and a very different mindset, I guess too, so the occasional ass grabbing the very sexualized jokes that you sort of just have to joke along with, um, the whole being one of the boys thing I, like Besha said, I just. I think about it now and it's just so gross, um, but back then I almost took pride in being a part of the boys club because I was in it because I joked along with them, um, but that really quickly changed uh, in me and you know, there was a lot of things that happened in those early days that I'd make sure when I was eventually to become a business owner myself were never to occur in my venues at all.
1: Well, yeah, Shannon, do female-operated businesses generally address abuse any better than male ones or is it about whether they've specifically sat down and thought about the culture in their kitchens?
0: I I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I would say that a majority of us um, as owners would mean that we've been in the industry for quite some time, so we've probably experienced some form form of abuse in one way or another. And I would be surprised if we all haven't just naturally implemented systems within our business to discourage that kind of behaviour.
1: So, Shannon, what is your sense of how much things have changed when, when you look at the, the places your executive chef at and, and your own establishment and, and the ones around you that I'm sure you visit regularly?
0: Um, look, it's it's definitely improved, but there's just still so much of it. and And I think, you know... The media has a large role to play in a lot of this In terms of uh, articles coming out Talking about this exact situation um, And these sort of scenarios Um, And there's some key players within this industry Who are notorious for this kind of behaviour And they're well known throughout all facets of the industry And we can continue to talk about this And we can continue to um, write about it Uh, But you know it only goes so far and it doesn't go into enough depth to stop the kind of behaviour. Uh, you know, like Not long ago, there was a fantastic uh, Facebook group called Not So Hospitable that was brought out. And it was a safe space for people to come forward and tell their stories about what had happened to them. This was South a South Australian based only. And within the last nine days, they got 250 reports of abuse. By chefs within the Adelaide hospitality scene And that's a pretty small scene compared to say Melbourne or Sydney But nothing came from it And that's my problem is that the names don't come out The men continue to run these restaurants and continue the cycle of this sort of behaviour So I think it needs to go further in
1: order for us to see
0: a big change
1: Yes, indeed. Well, Shannon, tell us about some of the ways that you try and do things differently in uh, your kitchen. As you said, you know, now that you've had time to look back and, and think about that culture and, and try and find something new.
0: Um, well, we, we strictly have a no-yelling sh- rule in kitchens, um, that, that kind of... Um, Humiliation that is very common In kitchens of really sort of Attacking one person if they've done Something wrong in front of a team It's just not conducive for good work um, Behaviour at all Because you know I would remember Someone would be getting an ass kicking um, Back in the soft tail days When physical things were still completely Accepted um, And then the entire kitchen will be on edge So it's not productive for anybody So you know Obviously, people are going to make mistakes throughout their days, um, but we pull them up on that at the end of the day or, you know, if it's something that needed to be addressed immediately, it's always taken away from the kitchen and uh, not in front of the uh, other team members and just spoken to, um, no yelling because it just it doesn't create a good vibe for anybody. So that's one of the things that we do. And we always make sure that we're taking pretty close attention to people's personal lives and how they're also feeling. And, you know, if someone's going through a bit of a rough patch and needs to take some time off just to sort of get their heads right,
1: then that's what we do. Yep. So there's some pretty basic positive management strategies in there. Shannon, thanks so much for speaking with us today and giving us that uh, different perspective. My pleasure. Shannon Martinez, uh, who's the uh, owner of Smith & Daughters Restaurant in Melbourne, executive chef there and elsewhere. You've been hearing today about the situation in hospitality when it comes to the culture especially in the kitchens texts flooding in sadly with similar experiences one recommends the book Raised by Wolves by Jess Ho about their experiences in the Melbourne hospitality industry some shockers there one from Vicky in Brisbane part-time job in the 70s a chef who was angry with me over what I still do not know handed me a boiling hot plate indicating to me that it was cold I'm sure it's improved says Vicky but back then dictatorial and Roshani Ipa you mentioned before how it's kind of been handed down to us, this culture from the original militaristic uh, system. Uh, Better, I understand that, was it your son who was told by one of his early bosses, when you're here, I'm your dad and you obey me? So it sounds like that dictatorial thing is still in relatively recent memory.
3: That was um, at a cafe and it was a trail that he was doing um, and he was, you know, underage and uh, and yeah, he he was not paid for that um, training set and he just he didn't have the tools to know um, whether that was OK, how to respond. You know, he's a he's a pretty shy kid, you know, and um and he had come from a big restaurant group at that point where he just hadn't, exp- that had HR that, you know, was was pretty well run, but he was looking for something with better hours. And he just didn't really know how to handle that. And And even when I said, okay, you can't go back there, you can find something else, he was terrified of even telling the guy that he didn't want to come back. And I was like, you know... I can help you write an email or something to say this is really not OK these days. And he said, I just don't want to do it. I just I just want to tell him that I got another job or something, you know. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it 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 happens all the time still. And, you know, it's it's not it's not going anywhere, especially um, when you're talking about vulnerable people, young people. um you know, we've been working. I also edit a platform called A Plus, which is a, a website for hospitality people, and we've done a huge uh, project on um, wage theft, which is a, a different. Uh, but it ties <laughs> a, in. But it does tie it's a power in. Imbalance. Yeah, and and so much of um, what we have been uncovering in terms of uh, who is getting ripped off on their wages, and I would assume they would also not know their rights in other places. Uh, you know, something shocking like seventy percent of um non-english uh advertisements for jobs uh, offer below the award rate <laughs> just you know brazenly you know brazenly, brazenly.
1: and well, that's that's the next question i mean some of these abuses are really serious uh some of them are happening in places with hr departments some of them without rashani what why is this still so widespread when there is such blatant uh breaking of rules and even laws in some cases
2: It's a really, really good question. I think there's myriad different reasons for that, unfortunately. Um, It comes down to, I think, people feeling safe enough to report these issues as well. Um, That's why it's important for us to have platforms like um, Not So Hospitable, which Shannon referenced before. I think they've started doing a lot of lobbying with the government in South Australia as well. Um, And then also um, there was Stephanie Wee from um, last Oh, my God, my brain has gone blank. Um, That happens in radio (laughs) studios
1: all the time.
2: Um, Stephanie is amazing. Um, She's got a a platform on Instagram where she allows anonymous submissions and whatnot. Um, Last call, that's the one. So I think it's really important for people to have platforms available to them outside of their workplace and people that they can speak to as well actively um, that they can report to.
1: Does there need to be better government regulation too, though? Just, you know, if someone going into workplaces and going, you can talk to me if there's some crap going down here. Yes, this is a
2: huge huge issue with hospitality. Besha, I just saw you looking at me. I'm sure you can chime in. <laughs> yeah. going well. it is.
3: I mean, it's funny because Shannon had said um, it needs to be something that the media deals with. But you look at the US and there's all of these kind of amazing, um, you know, very well investigated, very well reported uh, pieces about um, the culture of Of abuse and um, sexual assault often in in big restaurant groups. I really think that, you know, our defamation laws (laughs) put a real, you know, squash on that. It's something that was so shocking to me when I first got here to write for the New York Times, because that's the type of work that I had time to do. Um, But I just couldn't because the burden of um, those laws makes it really really impossible to do those kind of investigations and name somebody and i hear shannon's frustration with there are these names out there that people kind of know Mm. about and as a critic it for me you know i get sent to review places that i'm sure that stuff is going on i don't have i do two reviews a week I, i don't have time to be the investigative journalist and even if i did the the bar for publishing something like that and actually naming people is so high here. Mm. You couldn't even be just telling the truth and prove it and if you cause, you know, um, somebody to lose business, you can be sued. So people are very afraid to do that kind of journalistic work here and I think that's a real problem. And that is that's a government issue. I mean there's there's bigger there's maybe bigger fish to fry with that, <laughs> but it, it it is a real issue, I think. Well mm. and cultures I mean they they hard to shift often too. Roshani,
1: do do you think it's a problem if um, those kind of high-octane toxic restaurant kitchens are romanticised by popular culture when you see them kind of sent up in The Chef or, um, yeah, those reality TV ones in particular? Is that bad?
2: Um, Yeah, of course it's an issue if it's romanticised in that way. I think by the same token, I guess... Times are changing, like I said, so it's not going to be the same case for every single restaurant. Um, and there are some positive cultures and, like you said, HR and stuff that's implemented that actually works in some of these settings. Um, I think it's just really important that it just fosters that positive culture um, and and that people feel comfortable enough to speak out against these things. That's why with social media it's really important for community action, I suppose, that it's, it's a good tool for that. Um yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky one, I think. But it's also like I think time for all organizations to start addressing um that, you know, there is a non binary, there are females, there are males, just like someone said before, harassment doesn't just occur for females. Um, you know, three quarters of abusers are men. Um, But, you know, there is that quarter that is either female, female identifying or non-binary. It's really important to address all of these things and look at hospitality as a whole and kind of break those things apart in order to understand that it's not just black and white, I think.
1: Yep. Yeah, yep. There are many, many intersections. Rishani Ipa, Besha Rodell. thanks so much for coming into Life Matters to talk to us today. Thank Thanks. you so much. Uh, Roshani Ippas, founder of Culinary Magazine, Besha Rodell, chief restaurant critic at The Age, and you heard earlier from Shannon Martinez, owner of Smith and Daughters in Melbourne. A story up next of a child who was taken away and later returned, but it left big holes in two families. Now she's grown up and she's going to tell us the story of how she brought those two parts of herself together again. Are you a reader? Marketing,
4: I think, is a difficult one because no one knows how books are going to sell. It's kind of black magic. A listener.
3: Sakamoto was in a band called Yellow Magic Orchestra in the 70s.
5: Or a watcher. The film is not a sentimental film where it
1: invites easy allegiances or easy sympathies. Arts and culture covered. That's Breakfast with Patricia Carvellis. Weekday mornings from six here on ABCRN or on the ABC Listener. This is Life Matters coming to you from Wurundjeri land in Melbourne. Many people have gaps in their family stories, those things you realise are missing as you grow up. For Brenda Matthews, it was something big. She knew that she'd been born into a loving home with six siblings and that one day when she was two, the welfare took all seven kids away. Her parents fought and fought to get her back and they did, but Brenda knew there was another story in those missing five years as well. She tells the story of bringing those two families, those two stories, back together in her new book, The Last Daughter, and a film of the same name. Brenda Matthews is a proud Wiradjuri woman living in Bundjalung country in Queensland. Brenda Womanjika, welcome to you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Life Matters. Now, you and your brothers and sisters were taken away when you were two and you came back when you were seven, the last of the siblings to be reunited with the family. What was your mother told about why the welfare took you? Um, I don't think they gave her
5: any um, reason. They just said that um, she was unfit and that she couldn't look after her children.
1: And eventually you discovered some of the justifications they'd tried to make in your welfare files, didn't you? What was it like reading what they'd written there?
5: Um, It was a bit daunting because um, the story that they were telling didn't match the story that I knew about my mother and father.
1: They used some pretty awful words, didn't
5: they? Yeah, they did. I mean they also uh, told some lies that weren't written down, you know they told my white family that my mother and fa- uh, my father was an alcoholic, and you know couldn't look after his children. And my mother was a single mother who couldn't look after her children. You know,
1: and that was very far from the truth, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, happily married, and uh, your father didn't drink, did he? No, no, he he was a pastor,
5: so he we'd get, travel from town to town. You know, he'd go and share the word with people, and you know. We'd go out there to other people's places, and that's where we were at the time when we were taken in somebody else's house. But in the files, they turned around and said it, that that it was our house, and that you know it wasn't a fit house for us to household for us to be brought up in by their standards.
1: It was pretty harrowing watching the film and seeing how you uncover bit by bit by bit all the things that were uh, told that were untrue about your family and to your family. Brenda, do you remember what it was like being returned at the end of those five years, having not known that this was your birth family you'd be coming back to?
5: Um, At the time, I didn't understand it, but I've always had a memory there of my white father taking me across the road, holding my hand and taking me back to my mother and father's place I, I didn't understand it growing up I, I felt abandoned and rejected by them you know I thought they were my family I thought I was white so you know to be um, taken back and placed in a family that I didn't remember was just so traumatic
1: Yeah well then you write in the book and say in the film that you always felt there was something missing why did you have that feeling Brenda what was it that kind of kept cropping up for you I think it
5: was the love and acceptance that I felt from them, from my little white sister and, and my family, my white family. And, you know, I was taken when I was two so and returned when I was seven or eight. So that was a big chunk of my life that they were a part of, you know, as in early years growing up. And that's so much important, them younger years, you know, to have them impressions placed on you and then all of a sudden being taken away from that.
1: Yeah, I mean, as I said, I think I was bawling on the tram all the way to work watching <laughs> this movie. And I really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us about it today because it's not an easy story. Yeah. Brenda, when did you feel you were ready to act on that sense that something was missing and try and look further?
5: I think it was the encouragement of others too. I, I knew I had so, this big story that I had inside of me, but I just – I don't think I was ready at the time – to share it, but being encouraged to share and and tell the story. And I think, well, now it was time for me to yeah, say, no, this is my responsibility. I have this story, so I have to share that
1: story with others. What happened when you talked to your mum about this feeling that you needed to look for your white family?
5: It took a lot of courage to ask her because I, out of respect, I didn't want to hurt her. Um, but obviously there was that missing piece in my life, you know, and I really, that was drawing me back, that love that they had placed in my heart, that was that was drawing me back. So for me to ignore that would be like for me to be ignoring my story, you know, and um, I'm the only one who could share that story that was in me. So when I went and asked her, she was very reluctant at first and, you know, she was like, what do you want to go find them for? I was like, oh, okay. So I just, yeah, I just let it go. Um, But, yeah, and then after a while, I think she could see that I really wanted to go back and find them. And, you know, she just, she was able to see evidence within a little photo album that they had given me to say that, oh, she was loved when she was down there. They did take care of her. So, um, yeah, then she finally said yes.
1: So it sounds like from the book and the film that part of the reason she was so reluctant was it was just so incredibly painful to revisit that part of her life because it wasn't something that you talked about as a family, was it, after all the kids came back?
5: No, no, she never talked about it. Like, Dad always talked about it, and he wanted her to talk about it, you know, and he wanted her to be recorded talking about it, Um, I think, so we could have something to hold on to when we got older, but she was always fearful of that, you know, fearful of her own story, you know, and um, it was just too painful for her to talk about, but all she wanted was justice for her children, you know, and yeah.
1: You can see in the movie when, when you and your mum and your husband Mark travel to some of the locations where the, the key events of this story took place, how hard it is for her. She looks like such a strong woman, your mum Brenda. You can oh, see her just she's going, amazing. I'm going to do this. But what was that trip like for you all? Oh, it was so good because when we went back
5: to the house that we were taken from in Gilgandra, that was the first time she had been back to that house when we had, um, since we'd been taken and as soon as she stepped foot in that yard, she just broke down and yeah, it it was, it was really humbling but hurtful to look at her and crying over her children that had been taken away from her.
1: Yeah. That, that's a scar that never really heals, does it, though? I love, Brenda, how you talk about in the film that this was an attempt to heal, to, to bring those two pieces of your life together. We're speaking with Brenda Matthews. The book and the film are both called The Last Daughter. The book's out now. The film's coming soon. Brenda, I love how your your husband Mark's stepdaughters Kiara and Amy offer to help you look for things because when you need to find something on the internet, you need some young folk, don't you? <laughs> you do. What do they? We're, un- un- yeah, we're yeah. terrible at that. <laughs> I'm high fiving you right now. <laughs> what did they uncover? Um,
5: yeah. Well. They had a hard time um, finding, tracing, you know, my little white sister and um, my family because they had other, you know, Facebook pages and that. But they did uncover my little white sister's um, children, uh, one, of, one of her sons, her son. She's only got one son and one daughter. So, yeah, she, they got in contact with him and, you know, he hooked us up with um, my white mother. And, And, um, yeah, from
1: there it just – sorry. (laughs) No, no, that's all right. I was wondering what it was like that first meeting. You spoke to them on the phone and then what was it like getting out of the car that first time?
5: Oh, it was awesome. Like, I mean, I didn't didn't know what to expect because I couldn't remember their faces. All I could remember was the warmth and the love that they had shared with me. And I didn't remember their faces, but – you know, I thought that I would just start crying and bawling, but, you know, when when we got out, they were the ones and Mark was the one who was just bawling his eyes out. And I was just, I think I was still in shock that I had finally caught up with them and bumped into them after 40 years of, you know, trying to find them or thinking about them, wanting to find them. And, yeah, it was so awesome. I, it was a beautiful day for all of us.
1: So did it answer some of those questions you'd been keeping in your heart all those years about how they felt?
5: It certainly did. And oh, Sorry, probably going to cry again. Um, oh,
1: that's okay. I'll be brief. you probably. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, just to know that they did want to find me. They did want to know me and did wonder where I was. You know, they were some of the questions I always had on my mind and um you know, did I, did they still want me to be a part of their family? Um, That was very touching to me that they would even want to be that, you know, because that's what they thought when they, when they went in for, to sign up adoption forms, they thought they were adopting me, you know, they didn't, they wanted a child that they could love and share their love with and their home with. And they didn't want to just foster because they knew that they would have to give this child back, and you know they would just wanted to share that love, you know. And they did that. And when they, when they, when I went back and I saw them again, I just felt that love all over again. You know that that acceptance and that that mother's hug and a father's hug that can only be given through that love that is given. To them you know to share that with us with others
1: it was fascinating hearing them talk about their experiences on the other side you know the kind of flip side to your mum that some of the similar emotions running through their their experiences uh, and that they revealed some more bits of what they'd been told the, the kind of lies on their side as well as the lies told to your mum didn't they yeah
5: because, like, like I said, when we sat down, we we got together the first time, and, you know, the first question that Connie asks me was, "Well, how's your father? Is he still an alcoholic?" And I just was got thrown back by what she said, you know, and my heart just went out, and I'm thinking, why are they talking this way about my father? They don't even know him, you know, um, but then it was good because it opened the door for conversation and we were able to share with them what these lies that had been told and had been written down and not written down in our file, in my files. So yeah, it was just, and they were so, they were so um, thankful that we could tell them that because that's what they were told all along and that that's what they believed all along. So to be able to share truth with them
1: and to be able to receive truth was, um, I think was liberating for them too. Well, and liberating is such an interesting word because watching the footage of when your mum gets to meet your white family was really interesting. It was like a kind of weight seemed to lift off everyone. Was that how it felt for you, Brenda?
5: Yeah, it really did because, you know, for so long someone else was telling our story and, um, you know, there was another side of the story that needed to be told and to bring these two families together and two sets of parents together and to, to to be able for them to share each other what was on their hearts and what was the truth in their hearts and in their story was so wonderful because and liberating because for so long my mother's been holding that, um, my mother and father have been holding that identity of, you know, neglectful parents, and they weren't neglectful parents, and they got to share that with my white family, you know, and for so long my white family, being, my, my mother has been thought, thinking that they were the white fellows who took their ch- child away, you know, but they weren't, they just, were just a loving white family that
1: wanted to share that love with this little Indigenous girl. Yeah, and when you talk about other people telling your stories, you can see how the state was overarching and telling stories to both sides of that equation. Tell us what happened, Brenda, when you went uh, and explored your options under the reparation scheme for stolen children.
5: Uh, Yeah, well, we didn't know anything about it. So when we got told about it by a politician, you know, we just... um, they said fill in this form and you can go for it. But when we did fill in the form, well when I say we, I mean me and my husband, but it's really me, so when I filled in the forms, it was um they turned around and told me that I wasn't I wasn't classified as stolen generation because of the the line they drew in the sand at sixty nine. So then I had to go and get counselling, ten sessions, and then they told me that I wasn't traumatized. So I was now sitting in I don't know what category of, you know, what to call myself, you know, but my mother and father have always told us that we were stolen children and that's the identity that I held on for so long, you know, and my brothers and sisters held on to that. But there was no one who wanted to take responsibility for that. So I took it upon my shoulders to to share the story that was my responsibility to share the story and to share it out of love and forgiveness you know because there was so much hurt and pain and loss of identity and belonging and you know all amongst it so for me to go back and share that you know with my family on both sides was yeah so so liberating and
1: free Brenda, you tell your story in schools now. You've written this beautiful book, The Last Daughter, and this wonderful film, also called The Last Daughter. You co-directed that. What do you hope that people take from that if they see it, that they see, you know, these terrible things that were done to these two families by the state? What do you hope is the way forward from that?
5: Um, I think just to acknowledge history. Like, we can't change history, but we we can acknowledge it and we can find a way to move forward together you know and these safe spaces we call them you know um we need these safe spaces so we can share our stories not out of um anger and frustration but but out of the love and that that comes from our heart and the giving of that of just wanting to share a, a story you know it's it's we all hurt on both sides you know on all sides no matter what color you are we all hurt we can all be healed and, you know, I think sharing story and sharing truth is a, a great way to start the healing process in this country, you know, for, for for all of us, you know, because we all do carry the same story in this nation, you know, but what story are we gonna tell in the next 250 years and, you know, hand that down to our children and grandchildren? Are we still gonna tell the story of the trauma of the past or we're going to share the story of the the healing story to the next generations.
1: Yep, and as you say, you've got to fill in the gaps in that story before you can move on. Brenda, I really appreciate you joining us on Life Matters today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. That's a great pleasure. Brenda Matthews, a proud Wiradjuri woman living in Bundjalung country in Queensland. The book, The Last Daughter and the film coming out soon. All the details are about those are on the Life Matters page. And as Brenda notes in her book, this story might bring up some trauma and some pain for you. If you need support, a great place to start if you're Indigenous is 13YARN, 139276, 13YARN, 139276 or the healingfoundation.org.au Most of us like to think that we aren't prejudiced against others, but science says otherwise, I'm afraid. Up next, some practical ways to tackle those biases that we all have. If you're a regular ABC listener, you'll know that we strive for impartiality. But it's a controversial area. Some people feel that stripping out all your biases is definitely possible and essential, and others believe we can only try to be objective. I was a bit shocked when I took Harvard University's online implicit bias test because I am riddled with bias, apparently. It was really depressing. So, how then should we tackle prejudice if it's so insidious? Dr. Wingsair is the director of health and Behavioural Economics at Deloitte Access Economics. Her team has been collating the findings of prejudice intervention strategies from around the world with some very optimistic results. Wing, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for having me on the show today. Please to be here. It's a pleasure. Before we get into the strategies, just tell us quickly how much racism and prejudice cost the economy and how you calculate that.
4: Yeah, so when I started my PhD um, at Monash on prejudice reduction, I really was blown away by some of the research around the costs associated with prejudice. Um, In particular, there was a piece of work that was being done by Deakin University researchers, which found that racism alone was estimated to cost the Australian economy $37.9 billion a year. So to me, tackling... Yeah, that's right, a year. So, you know, quite a substantial amount, and it really shines a spotlight on how important it is to be thinking about how we tackle prejudice.
1: Well, yeah, and it's one way to measure it, though. Obviously, the human cost, uh, you know, even apart from the cost of the mental health care system, are, are enormous. Wing, could you summarise for us the six different types of prejudice intervention strategies that have been tried and, and a bit about how they work?
4: Yeah, so my co-authors and my supervisors, Professor Rebecca Wicks and Dr. Nicholas Faulkner and I, reviewed a whole range of different strategies that had been tested in real-world settings. Um, I wanted to highlight two in particular because they are the most common ones that have been used and probably quite familiar to a lot of your listeners. So the first one um, that was used in around half of the interventions that we found is contact. Um, This is an approach which I think is quite familiar in the sense that it is about trying to reduce prejudice by encouraging people from different groups to meet each other. And then the next most common approach um, used in 41% of the interventions that we found was um, something that we called awareness, which is an education-based approach. And this was really about educating people to understand what constitutes prejudice or discrimination, um, the types of negative consequences associated with prejudice,
1: And any sort of errors that might be associated with common stereotypes as well. So contact and awareness, they're pretty familiar. Then there was categorization. Mm. What's that?
4: Yeah, categorisation is thinking about how we think about um, the categories that we all slot into. So we might think about very sort of small groups that we are part of. But what might be helpful in terms of reducing prejudice is thinking about higher order categories. So we might think that we're you know members say of a particular religious group, but you know a higher order category would be thinking about uh, nationality. So whilst we might be part of a religious group, we're also part of um, a particular nationality, which is a higher group, and a more inclusive grouping.
1: And that has been found to be effective in some instances. I found it really fascinating reading up on these strategies, contact, awareness, categorisation. There was perspective taking, which is encouraging people to draw parallels between their own experience and others mm-hmm. and social norms, which is challenging ideas about what's normal and acceptable. But tell us about the one you discovered was actually the most effective perceived variability.
4: Yeah, so this is quite a surprising find because there hasn't been a lot of research on perceived variability, but the research that is in existence suggests it is quite an effective, if not the most effective approach to date um, in reducing prejudice in real world settings. So perceived ability is an approach that tries to reduce prejudice by increasing someone's perception of their ability um, in a particular group. Um, So you can see an example of that in a recent blog that um, I did for Psyche magazine, um, where there was a poster that was developed by some researchers in France that featured 12 people from similar ethnic backgrounds, but then tried to highlight their variability and their differences by including descriptors like their name, their age, their differing interests, um, then brought together with a tagline that suggests, uh, that, that basically said that what makes us the same is our difference. And I think what was really exciting about that was that research um, indicated that on average, it was actually 11% more um, impactful than you know really common contact base. Intervention.
1: Yeah, I love how they measured it on the thermometer measure of prejudice and found that it was significantly more uh, effective. We're speaking with Dr. Wing Sayre, the Director of Health and Behavioural Economics at Deloitte Access Economics and I don't know if you heard that figure that Wing quoted before, $37.9 billion a year it costs the Australian economy racism and prejudice. I mean that is huge Uh, even if we weren't up for changing it for other more human-centred reasons. So Wing How easy would it be to roll out campaigns based on perceived variability, like the French experiment with the the posters using Arab Mm. individuals and drawing those parallels?
4: Yeah, I think this is where I think the other exciting aspect of perceived variability is that um, when I looked to understand how likely it would be and how feasible would be to roll out. This was a strategy that seemed quite promising um, against the scalability criteria that I developed with a range of prejudice reduction experts. Um, And particular features of the prejudice um, reduction approach based on perceived variability that really uh, gives it good potential for scaling Um, is really um, that it doesn't, as an approach, require active participation. So a poster is something that you see, you don't need to necessarily actively participate in, Whereas with, say, education or contact-based approaches, you really do need someone to actively engage. And I think the other um, promising aspect for scaling uh, perceived variability-based approaches is really that it's likely to be low cost because it does lend itself to those online or print media formats um, as opposed to necessarily being in an in-person format
1: as some of the other strategies require. I love how simple that poster was. It just said, here's blah, blah person, their age, their first name. They like playing chess or some other, you know, mm. n- n- fact about their lives that made you go, oh, yeah, I, I do that too. W- what? How could we use those uh, strategies in our daily lives, wing? Are there ways that we can engage with and challenge our own or others' prejudices um, using that theory?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where, um, you know, at the heart of it, when we think about these prejudice reduction approaches, um, if we're, you know, wanting to think about how this can impact and how we can bring that into our day-to-day lives, um, you know, understanding the underlying mechanisms on these approaches um, is the starting point. And so for something like perceived variability, um, to bring that concept into our day-to-day lives, I think we can all be thinking about and pausing and reflecting on whether... We ourselves are relying on generalisations or biases and that pause and reflection I think is um, part of that process of broadening our views and broadening our perception of variability amongst particular groups. But it's not just perceived variability, I think, that can be helpful for our day-to-day lives. We can also think about how contact-based approaches or awareness-based approaches might affect us um, in our day-to-day lives or might be brought into our day-to-day lives. So, for example, with a contact-based approach, at the heart of it is really about meeting people who are from different groups to us and so you know and encourage listeners who are interested in thinking about this approach um, to you know go out and try to make that effort to meet people from different groups. Um, When we think about awareness type approaches it's also then something that we can do on a day-to-day basis as well because we can be trying to educate ourselves on how um, minority um, members are experiencing life and some of the challenges or some of the reflections that they're experiencing. Um, There's you a know, rich body of... Film, news, books that we can all be engaging in to have that better understanding of the challenges of prejudice um, as experienced by members of the minority group.
1: Well, and you can see how some of the other theories would would work really well together with those ones too. Just changing the no, boundaries exactly. of you know what you think of as the in group and the out group. When you've put a lot of your uh, career energy into this field, would you consider yourself to be prejudiced personally, or is that something you've been able to just weed out?
4: <laughs> it's a really good question. I don't, um, I'm of the view that it is very hard to be able to be completely prejudiced. So this is something that I myself am, you know, trying to grapple with um, in my own ways. And I think, in many respects, this is why this research really excites me. Right, prejudice is something that I think we all have direct experiences in, um, oftentimes on both sides of the coin. And being able to, you know, take a step back and think about how we, um, you know, engage with, uh, you know, fellow fellow humans in society, I think, is quite important. And part of that is being able to. Um, Try and tackle our own prejudices and biases.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, are, are there things that you're doing in your everyday life? Uh, watching lots of films on SBS, for example, as you as you kind of suggested earlier. Yes. <laughs>
4: Yes, well, definitely. I think you know part of it is interest, but part of it is you know I think that that interest does stem into thinking about how we can be a more inclusive society. Um, you know, we know that there are such detrimental cost to prejudice, and on the flip of that is that by being prejudiced, we're not making um, everyone feel included in society, or whether that's workplaces, whether that's schools, uh, whether that's in sports setting or any any other setting um, where there are those interactions. And I, I think that is a real shame because I think. You you know, being a more inclusive society is an important part of making sure that everyone is able to fully contribute to um to the benefit of society.
1: And you know, being able to do that is how we sort of grow um, as a, as a country. Indeed. Dr. Wing said, thank you so much for sharing the results of your research with us on life matters. Thanks for your time. Have a good day. You too, Dr. Wing is the director of health and behavioural economics at Deloitte Access Economics. Wow, how exactly does anyone calculate the cost of prejudice? Is the question via text? Well, they've crunched the numbers about the impact on mental and physical health services, among other things, of uh, people carrying that burden of being having you know racist assumptions attached to them. When we talked about the culture in hospitality before, it just spawned this deluge of texts. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of them saying, yep, this happened to me. One just says, join your union. And another expands on that. WorkSafe and or relevant union should be called into workplaces whenever this bullying occurs. That's from Steve in Altona. He says, hospitality workers need to organise to combat this toxic behaviour and many HR departments invariably side with managers and perpetrators. You can see, Steve, how a 15-year-old apprentice might not feel their to starting uh, an organising push on their own. Shannon is right. Shannon Martinez, it's another text. In my experience, there is a lot of tolerance in the so- for the so-called chef genius in society and the media, as though being a good cook is an excuse for appalling behaviour. I saw tolerance by owners of racism, sexism, verbal abuse and bullying. I am no longer in the industry. Thanks so much for your contributions today to Life Matters. That's it for us for the moment. But our next episode episode we'll see Beverly Wang look at the frustrations that can spring up when you're not getting what you want out of work whether that's a promotion or a pay rise or just a new challenge to get your teeth into and some solutions how do you ask for and even achieve those changes that would make work more satisfying and more meaningful tricky conversations with the boss and how to navigate them next time on life matters I'm Hillary Harper I look forward to chatting with you next time